Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about long-range outcomes for children who survive cancer. So sometimes we'll give uh, families either a card or a sheet of paper that summarizes their therapy that says what kinds of screening we would recommend. Then we'll discuss autoimmune and inflammatory diseases and a new research center at Upstate. Gene therapy is rapidly changing. You know, you can actually use the patient's own cells now to make genetic modifications with the CRISPR-Cas technology. So time will come very soon when these changes can be genetically made, but we're not there yet. And we'll hear about skull-based surgery options. Sometimes part of it will be open, sometimes uh, part of it will be endoscopically, uh, and work with the neurosurgeons to remove the tumor. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, the Chief of Rheumatology at Upstate talks about a new research center for autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. Then, an ear, nose, and throat doctor discusses skull-based surgery. But first, we'll hear from a pediatric oncologist about long-range outcomes for children who survive cancer. Most children survive childhood cancers today, although many will experience late effects. Here to discuss the long-term outcomes of childhood cancer is pediatric oncologist Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics, bioethics, and humanities at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So what do we mean when we say long-term outcomes? So a couple of things. Sometimes when we're talking about long-term outcomes, we're talking about survival and, and risk of relapse after cancer, but we're also talking about the secondary effects of the cancer and mainly the cancer treatment. Uh, so a lot of the treatments we use for cancer are still very toxic. The way I usually explain it to families is that most treatment for cancer, most chemotherapy works by killing cells that are growing really fast and the cancer cells are growing the fastest. So they get killed the most easily and they tend not to come back because they're pretty damaged. They're not healthy cells, but we also damage the healthy cells in doing that. And some of that causes the immediate side effects that we think about like the nausea and vomiting and hair loss. But some of those effects are life long um, or can show up years later if they show up at all. So that's what we're thinking about when we talk about late effects. That's pretty frightening when you think about it that way, but um, you have the immediate issue of trying to treat a child in the current day, Mm -hmm. present moment. So what percentage of children survive childhood cancer and then what percentage go on to have like late-term effects? So the estimates in the U.S. and in other developed um, and high-income countries right now is that it's probably about 88%. Um, So about 12% will die either from their cancer or from the immediate toxic effects of their therapy from immediate complications. Um, So most children are cured. I think that's something people often don't realize when they think about just how devastating it would be to hear that your child has cancer. Your chances of being cured as a young child are actually much better than your chances of being cured as an adult. Oh, okay. That is encouraging. Yeah, and and we've made tremendous progress in the last 40 and 50 years. But then what are some of the most common late effects? And um, 
so there's a lot. One of the big ones that we talk about a lot now and has gotten a lot more attention is infertility. A lot of the chemotherapy causes infertility radiation if it's near the pelvic organs and the reproductive organs can cause infertility. Um, and increasingly, people have realized that we need to tell families and, and children if they're old enough to understand upfront that this shouldn't, I think a, a generation or two ago, people didn't mention it, they didn't talk about it. The children who survived grew up and then were surprised or shocked or devastated when they couldn't have their own children. And the thought now is that by talking about this from the beginning, offering fertility preservation when it's available, mm -hmm. but making people aware that not, not everyone chooses it. So we talk to teenagers about storing sperm, about storing eggs. A lot of kids don't want to do that, and that's okay. But just the awareness, and we have just to have about the adoption. option. Yeah, that they right. that there are options out there, but it may not be having their biological children, and and they should be aware of that. And I think it makes a difference just knowing going through it that this will not be a shock later on. Okay, what about just the um, living with the idea that you know the cancer could come back? That's really hard. Um, and I was just talking to a family yesterday who's finishing therapy about how hard the transition off therapy is because people go very quickly from having a lot of visits and someone constantly checking things and fairly frequent scans if they had a solid tumor like a Wilms tumor or bone marrow tests or blood tests to look for leukemia to not having much of anything. And, and there's follow-up every few months, but it's not nearly as often as during the on-therapy stage. And for a lot of people, that's a source of anxiety. Some, suddenly you're not being checked as much. Um, right. So if you it, come every week and you get reassured, that's, mm -hmm. that's nice. And so if you don't have that. Yep. And then suddenly you have to learn to not to, to sort of cope on a day to day basis without that reassurance. And I think that's a really challenging part. Depending on the cancer, the risk of relapse can mostly be in the first year or it can last five or 10 years later. So for some children, it's something that they will learn to live with on a day-to-day -day basis for a long period of time. And I think we're getting better at providing the psychosocial support and helping them figure out coping mechanisms to live with that in the background. It's a sense of your mortality that most people don't get until they're much older. Wow. Well, now having had one cancer, does that set you up uh, at a higher risk to have another unrelated cancer? So it does, yeah. Some of the treatments that we use, some kinds of chemotherapy, not all of them, but some specific drugs um, and radiation actually can cause, sec we call them secondary cancers or second malignant neoplasm sometimes. Um, and the risk is about 3% over 20 years. So after, about 20, after 20 years after therapy, about 3% of children will have developed a secondary cancer that we think is related to their treatment. You have to put that in the context of the fairly high rates of cancer in the U.S. So one out of four adults will die from cancer. And if you get lung cancer 60 years from now and smoked a lot, it's probably not as related to your pediatric cancer treatment as to your smoking. As to smoking. Uh, but there is that risk. And that's something I try to prepare people for too, just to know it's not it shouldn't be a major source of anxiety because it's still a small risk, but it's not something we want to leave out and then have someone come in later and tell them your child has cancer again and we know what caused it. It was what we did and have them say, nobody ever told me that was even possible. This oh. is something people should know about when they're when they're going through therapy. 
And what about um, quality of life issues? Are there... Yeah, so there's an increased risk for a lot of conditions that can worsen quality of life. We worry most about the ones that might not only cause some disability or impair quality of life, but can also be life-threatening. So some forms of chemotherapy and radiation to the chest can cause heart failure. They can also cause pulmonary fibrosis um, and lung problems. And we Years mo- later. Years later, yeah. Okay. And the, the risk for heart failure is really a lifelong risk. As with some of these other late effects, the the risk interacts with the other things you're exposed to. So we go through life, we're exposed to all of these toxins, we don't always eat what we should, we don't always exercise as much. But if you've also had chemotherapy as a child or radiation, your risk from, say, a heart attack is that much greater. Uh, so in the early studies, the first the first group of children that we really consistently cured was children with Hodgkin's disease, diagnosed in the late 60s and 70s. And beginning in the 80s, St. Jude started following these children, and that was the first childhood cancer survivor study. And so they started really being able to see what late effects occurred, what were the risk factors, what dose of radiation was likely to cause these problems. And since then, we've gotten much, much better about monitoring so that I can now tell children or tell their parents, you need to have an echocardiogram to look at how your heart is functioning this often during therapy and this often in the first couple of years after. But then you really need to keep up with those tests throughout your life. Um, so sometimes we'll give Uh, families either a card or a sheet of paper that summarizes their therapy that says what kinds of screening we would recommend and then even after they've grown up after they've transitioned to adult care or gone off to live in another city they have that and can take it to their new doctor and say this is what happened to me and this is what you need to do to make sure those late effects get caught early when they can be treated. Wow. Well, I've got some more questions, but this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown, a pediatric oncologist at Upstate. Now, when in the process do you talk to families and children about late effects? I mean, if you're just talking to someone about the, the new diagnosis, when do you bring up this? Yeah, so I not in the very first talk. Um, in the very first talk, when I'm, I'm telling someone, what is usually the worst day of their life at that point or one of the worst days of their life. I try to focus on that we can treat the cancer that for most cancers, there's at least some chance of cure. There are still ones that are very, very hard to cure, but for almost everything we have treatments, we have a chance of curing the child. And I want them to remember that and not worry about anything else until we get the exact diagnosis and can talk about exactly what the treatment is. I want people to remember that they didn't do anything to cause this, that they couldn't have done anything to prevent it. And I don't want them to be thinking about more than that because it's pretty overwhelming. For anyone who's gotten bad news, it's literally the wind rushing, water rushing in your ear, head underwater, really overwhelmed. So that's not the time to be talking about what might happen in 20 years or what might happen in 40 years. When we talk about exactly what kind of cancer it is and exactly what treatments we're going to give, then we usually start talking about the side effects for drugs. And for each of the chemotherapy drugs that we might use, I mention the most common late effects. What are the ones that you're most likely to see or that are most serious? Um, So that's the point where I usually mention that there is some risk of secondary leukemia for some of our chemotherapy or that there is a risk of heart problems. And I emphasize needing to follow up regularly to catch things early, um, which is a way of just making them feel like there is something we can do. This isn't a situation in which the doctors and the patients and families are totally helpless. There are things we can do to help catch these things early when they're more manageable and more likely to be treatable. So the screening and monitoring, that's sort of one way to 
maybe not necessarily prevent, but at least stay on top of yep. what may come. Yeah, okay. and ca- catch things early. And I also now tell families, our data is old. Our data, to, to look at late effects, we have to look at children who were treated for cancer 10, 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Treatment has changed a lot, both the treatment for cancer. I think we're much better now at giving exactly the doses that children need, not more and not less. So we look at things like how they respond to the initial therapy. And if the response is great, then we don't need to give them extra therapy. If their response is a little slower, they might need extra doses to get to that cure, knowing those are more likely to cause late effects. So I talk to families about how we're trying to tailor their treatment to exactly what their child needs, and that's a way of preventing late effects. And when we look at that old data, we don't necessarily know how this will play out for the children being treated right now. In adult medicine, there have also been great changes and great improvements and strides in care. And so I don't know what treatment for heart failure will look like in 30 years. If the child in front of me is one of those who does develop heart failure from radiation or chemotherapy, we may have artificial hearts that we can easily implant in 40 years. The options may be very, very different. And so I try to create that sense of hope and optimism because I think that's really important. Do you uh, ever talk with your patients about your father having cancer at age 19? Uh, Sometimes, yeah. So some uh, parents have asked me why I went into this, and Mm -hmm. that is a big part of the story. So that is the time when I will most most often answer honestly about my own experiences. Um, So my dad was one of the early Hodgkin survivors, um, and like most or many of the the children and young adults in that cohort, he had a really early heart attack. Um, He was in his early 40s, and he had had a lot of much higher doses of radiation to his chest wall than we give now. Um, He eventually developed pulmonary fibrosis. He developed heart failure. He had some infections related to his therapy, but he also worked until the day he died. He had a really rewarding, Mm -hmm. wonderful life. He had children, uh, which if he had actually been treated a few years later, he wouldn't have gotten radiation, but he would have gotten chemotherapy medicines that cause infertility. Uh, So I wouldn't be here if he had been a little bit younger. So in in that sense, that's a really powerful story to me, because even though he had these late effects, he had a wonderful life and he was really he, re- he was really aware of that and appreciative of that in a sense that I don't know that he would have had without his cancer or without his other illnesses. Uh, and he lived for 45 years after his diagnosis. That's got to be encouraging for patients to hear about that. I think so. It, it encourages me in what I do, that when I see a family and they're struggling, that there are some really amazing, beautiful outcomes. What about the patients themselves? I guess the age, it's going to be dependent on the age, but mm-hmm. how involved do the children get in, I don't know, making decisions about whether to take this medication that might cause problems later on? It varies a lot. Um, and a, sort of a classic stance in pediatrics and in ethics is that a lot of it depends not just on age, but how long they've been ill. So a child who is nine who has had leukemia since they were three and been through relapses and been through therapies is in a much better position to talk about the options and to help support their parents in making a decision and be supported by their parents in making their own decision than a child who is the same age but has just been diagnosed. That when they've had experiences and they sort of know how the hospital works, they know how the treatments feel, they have an expertise and a maturity from that expertise that another child who has not been sick before may not. Um, And depending on some of the therapies do cause some cognitive problems. So some older children who have had a lot of therapy may not be 
the same age. Their biological age may not be their cognitive age in terms of making decisions. So we have to work through that with the families. And every family has a different style and different preferences in terms of how involved their children are going to be. Um, but in general, we try to tell children what's going on to a level that they can understand. And we try to give them choices about how involved they want to be in the decision making. Oh, well, interesting. Thank you so much for talking about this. You're welcome. My guest has been pediatric oncologist, Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Andres Pearl is the Chief of Rheumatology at Upstate University Hospital, as well as a SUNY Distinguished Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and Microbiology and Immunology. He will also lead the new Lupus Autoimmunity Inflammation and Immune Health Center of Excellence at Upstate, and he's here to talk with me about that. Thank you for being here, Dr. Thank Pearl. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So tell us about this, uh, the new Center of Excellence. So the new Center of Excellence uh, came into being after <clears throat> trying to create it for a number of years. Uh, the current impetus to uh, establish the center is propelled by the award from the state of New York uh, in response to an initiative uh, called ECRIP, uh, which is designed to uh, train research investigators <clears throat> this program is called Empire Clinical Research Investigator Program. And under this program, they establish centers across New York. And this center, uh, these centers have to uh, serve a purpose and ensure that once the center is established, it will be supported, at least in part, by the federal government. Given that I had support from NIH, National Institutes of Health, for about 25 years, there's a very good chance that this will receive continued support from the federal government, and that is, I believe, the state decided to support the center. So you have a lot of grants and a history of grants from the right, National Institutes right. of Health, mostly and on lupus? Mostly on lupus. So okay. currently we have three grants that are uh, focused on lupus, and two of them are uh, basic research studies looking at the causes of lupus. Uh, using human subjects uh, and healthy controls as well as animal models, uh, genetically modified uh, animals that are predisposed to disease and provide opportunity to treat the disease and prevent the disease animal models. We've been using the results acquired during these studies to develop clinical trials. Okay. And we have conducted several clinical trials that actually worked and one of the trials that we conducted at Upstate has been supported now by NIH to, um, to move on to a phase two clinical trial, uh, multi-center study, uh, which is being planned, and the center will be directly supporting this study 
uh, in lupus. That's one of the goals of the center, uh, which would be a study involving about 200 lupus patients. Is that for a new treatment for lupus? For, that's for a new treatment for lupus, which uh, showed uh, initial uh, promise um, during a phase one, phase two pilot Very study. Interesting. So this, uh, the Center of Excellence, you've already got a, a lot of patients um, that you take care of that would just become part of this Center of Excellence. It's, yes, that's correct. Okay, all right. And it'll be part of Upstate? Yes, it will be part of Upstate, and the way we envision that the center will be also supported by the institution, um, the state of New York expects the institution to provide a matching grant for the center, which I believe could be very valuable to uh, develop outreach programs uh, to patients. Many of our patients are very sick. They cannot hold on to a job, and they need education, how to cope with the disease, and perhaps uh, how to be uh, better adjusted into society. And uh, learning about the disease could be very helpful for them. So I ambition to uh, do educational programs that we occasionally have done through the Arthritis Foundation or Lupus Foundation, but this will provide um, a mechanism to generate such or develop such programs from within upstate, okay. which would, of course, also raise uh, more referrals and more recruitment of patients to our programs, and we need support to handle the patient volume. Currently, we follow about 800 to 900 lupus patients and uh, several thousand patients with rheumatoid arthritis and uh, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis. So all these autoimmune disease patients that we currently uh, take care of would be uh, seen within the center. Uh, the educational part of the center could also extend to other subspecialties such as uh, nephrology because many of our patients have nephritis or renal failure or neurological diseases such as multiple sclerosis. And I have been in a, in a discussion with other physicians in these subspecialties, and they are very excited to be part of the center. So the center will uh, provide research, will be part of it, patient education, yes. and patient care and patient collaboration care. with others. So what I'm, I like to do as a game changer is develop interdisciplinary clinics. Right now we see our patients uh, in our arthritis clinic, uh, but if they need uh, parallel care, for the renal disease or pulmonary disease or, let's say, neurological disease. It's hard to organize that uh, in the same session. And you can imagine some of the patients travel for hours to see us. It would be beneficial to them to be able to coordinate such a care that they are seen uh, at the same time. So these are the things that I'd like to develop for which we need resources and staff. Neat. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with rheumatologist Dr. Andres Pearl. Um, so autoimmune diseases is one of the segments um, that will be covered in this center. Um, can we talk about some of the most common of these diseases and what they have in common with each other? Are there common themes that you mentioned lupus and psoriasis? Um, and there's many, many others, but are there s some similar themes within the diseases? Right, so all these diseases are genetically determined. We are working on the genes that are exposed to the diseases. Does that mean you, you're born with them? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, so 
people are predisposed, for example, identical twins have a 25% concordance rate for rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. Interestingly, the same genes predispose to different diseases. So it is possible that in one family, an ancestor would have rheumatoid arthritis, but the patient itself that we would see as a descendant of that ancestor would have lupus or uh, psoriasis. Many of these Another genes are shared. Okay. You know, wow. We believe approximately 50 to 100 genes play a role in these diseases. And the, the interplay and environmental factors determine whether one will develop the disease or not. So many of the pathways we're trying to discover are shared by these patients. So sometimes one treatment that works for one disease can actually propel the other disease or activate another disease. So it's very important that the diagnosis is correctly made because there are a lot of similarity the forms of arthritis, which how the patient can present initially. So it's important, for example, that you, when you make the diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, that you rule out lupus, because some of the medications you would use for rheumatoid arthritis very effectively could actually make things worse. Wow. Is it difficult to diagnose? Which? Uh, if you have the experience and the background, the laboratory uh, background, Upstate has an excellent uh, laboratory, clinical laboratory, and immun immunological laboratory, and hematology laboratories that we use for this purpose. And uh, actually, we have very good backup support to make the correct diagnosis, and uh, many institutions don't have that luxury. They send out their samples to commercial sources, which are not as good and reliable. So that's, so a, having the that's lab a great asset, actually. Right here, you can confer with the laboratory staff yes, if needed. Yes, good uh, cooperation from the labs. So you mentioned um, genetics. So are, are the uh, efforts to sort of get at cures for these diseases, are they all based on genetics or is that the more and more, it's based on genetics because the treatments that we have are so-called biologicals. So we identify molecules that are involved in inflammation, and many of the new drugs that we use are actually antibodies or receptors, genetically designed drugs which are safe, biocompatible, very specific, and very expensive. Mm and they are very potent. So the overall outcomes of rheumatoid arthritis have markedly improved in the last uh, 20, 25 years since the introduction of certain recombinant proteins and so-called biologicals like antibodies to tumor necrosis factor or receptor of tumor necrosis factor. And we have a number of uh, monoclonal antibodies to interleukins, interleukin-6 or interleukin-17, Antibodies are very effective to block rheumatoid arthritis or uh, psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis. And we have new drugs also such of such nature to treat lupus, but lupus drugs are just currently being developed. But these are treatments, not cures. These are treatments, not cures. That's right. So we can't change the genome of the person. As I mentioned, a number of genes are involved. You can't, at the moment, change 50 to 100 genes. However, gene therapy is rapidly changing. You know, you can actually use the patient's own cells now to make genetic modifications with the CRISPR-Cas technology. So time will come very soon when these changes can be genetically made, but we're not there yet. But knowing the genes and having well-defined targets to treat are very important, and okay. that's what the center would do. 
Well, getting back to your specialty of lupus, the autoimmune disease, is there a lab test to tell whether a person has lupus? Uh, there are several lab tests uh, that are very helpful, but making the diagnosis requires uh, the, certain, the presence of certain genetic factors which uh, manifest in positive lab tests. Uh, literally, you cannot make the diagnosis without having something called antinuclear antibody, which is a laboratory test done in the immunology laboratories very well, I must say, at Upstate. So we don't actually make the diagnosis without these lab tests. By, the, by themselves, they don't establish the diagnosis. Certain clinical uh, factors have to be present. As um, well, clinical factor, what? like for example, arthritis, photosensitivity, okay. certain types of rash. So these certain are things type that of a kidney disease would... or central nervous system disease, brain disease. For example, seizures are a factor, or for example, psychiatric illnesses could be an important part of lupus, which is what mm -hmm. we work on, in part to better describe because they are very poorly understood and these are the factors that prevent them from holding on to job jobs so we had a long-standing collaboration with some of the psychiatrists at upstate to better characterize we just discovered a few years ago that lupus patients are having a higher prevalence of adult uh, attention deficit uh, disorder adhd which one of the treatments that we're trying actually is helpful so, for example, acetylcysteine we found, which helps lupus, also have helps ADHD symptoms. That was one of the outcomes of our clinical trial. So there could be people, though, that are dealing with the adults that have ADHD or have some of these other symptoms, the, the rash or the kidney right. problems, and maybe not have put it all together and received a, a lupus diagnosis, right. right? So that's very common that we see patients sometimes sent to us for fibromyalgia. I always work them up for lupus as well because I personally don't want to overlook it, but sure. rarely we find people who are sent to us for fibromyalgia only and they also have lupus. Not very often, but it does happen. What is the sort of prognosis or what sorts of things can you offer to someone who gets diagnosed with lupus these days? So the prognosis is highly variable, depend, depends on the patient's genetic makeup. Uh, some lupus patients have relatively mild disease. Uh, younger individuals, females in their teens who present with nephritis uh, tend to have more severe disease. And... Uh, Older males, for example, also have more severe disease. So a younger woman with a kidney problem or with older kidney male inflammation with... or older males with kidney inflammation or sometimes myositis have more severe disease. Okay. In older individuals, we also look at um, overlapping malignancies. Sometimes autoimmune disease can be a first manifestation of a certain forms of cancer, lymphoid cancer, which we are also aware of, and our center would be closely working with oncologists because many of the new treatments for cancer actually induce autoimmune disease. Wow. That's part of our center to uh, look at that and try to understand how that develops. Uh, the pathway that we targeting in our treatments would actually target this pathway, which is involved in autoimmunity that develops uh, in treatments, so, uh, certain treatment conditions of cancers called checkpoint inhibitors. 
They work really well for advanced cancer, but many patients develop a human disease such as lupus or myositis. Well, it's nice to know the level of expertise that's available at Upstate. Uh, thank you for being here. My guest has been rheumatologist Dr. Andres Pearl. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up, scapegoat or solve? Well, folks, psychological research has expanded the original notion of intelligence from plain vanilla cognitive intelligence, the ability to read, write, reason, analyze, prioritize, to include emotional and social intelligence, basically smarts about our own and other people's feelings, and related smarts about working effectively in groups with other people who have feelings. <laughs> no surprise there. Now, rarely does life offer such clear, dramatic, compelling examples of psychological principles as in our headlines every day now about President Trump and Congress. He was elected because Almost half the country likes some of his ideas. But since taking office, if he doesn't like what or how someone is doing, he tweets insults and personal attacks, attempting to humiliate the other person in front of the entire world. The result? He has turned many of his former allies, people who agree with at least some of his agenda, into defiant enemies, simply not willing to move his legislative agenda along. Why? Well, when we're nasty to people we're working with, they mainly hear the nasty, and any message about the work task just can't be heard well, if at all. And the personal attacks hurt feelings and poison our ability to work together. Or put another way, and forgive me for this, <laughs> the nasty trumps the message. Even in the dog-eat-dog -dog world of politics, and especially in our everyday lives. What to learn from this? A simple maxim drawn from ancient Buddhist wisdom aptly sums up the psychology. Do your work and always be kind. We need this maxim because, like our president, all people, including you and me, are tempted to be nasty when we're frustrated by not getting our own way. Always have been going back eons. And we forget the only way to make substantial steps forward is by working with other people, not against them. I'm Rich, striving to be kind, O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Next up, who might need skull base surgery? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today I'm speaking about skull-based surgery techniques with an ear, nose, and throat doctor who's relatively new to Upstate, Dr. Mitchell Gore, an assistant professor of otolaryngology and communication sciences is here. Welcome, Dr. Gore. Thanks for having me. So first, can you explain what skull-based surgery is? So skull-based surgery essentially is surgery that deals with the base of the brain. Um, And there's lateral skull-based surgery that primarily deals with uh, issues with the uh, temporal lobe or the temporal bone. uh, And that's above the ear? Exactly. Exactly, above the ear. Uh, And there are specific surgeons who have specific skill sets in that area. Uh, and then there's the anterior skull base, which is the area below the frontal bone and the ethmoid bones in the middle of the uh, skull, kind of between the eyes. Uh, and so a lot of that is done endoscopically, and so that's kind of my area of expertise. Wow. So, specialization. Exactly. You're very, yeah. very specialized. Okay. Um, and then there's lots of openings in the base of the skull for... Exactly, for primarily for the cranial nerves, so the nerves that control the sense of smell, vision, uh, movement of the tongue, um, sensation to the face, things like that, and also uh, several uh, blood vessels such as the carotid arteries and things like that all enter and exit uh, through the, uh, the base of the skull. And so that's why that type of surgery is kind of uh, specialized. Okay. Now you mentioned endoscopy. Mm-hmm. That, that you work at. Is some of the skull-based surgery done as an open surgery and then some of it is closed or endoscopic? Exactly. So probably the biggest advance in uh, skull-based surgery kind of in the last 10 to 15 years has been that uh, endoscopes uh, have become much more advanced. Um, camera and video technology has become much more advanced. And so people in different areas, uh, the University of Pittsburgh was one big area that was kind of instrumental in developing these things. Um, And people began to develop techniques for accessing and operating on uh, the base of the skull through the nose, so through a natural orifice. And so what people found over time is that for a lot of this type of surgery, that the recovery times after surgery, the visualization, um, things like that, uh, were much better in some cases than doing the surgery open through an incision in the face. And so what people found that as uh, technology uh, for visualization and uh, endoscopes advanced, that the uh, ability to access different areas of the brain, the ability to remove certain tumors, fix certain problems at the base of the skull uh, advanced as well. And so that's part of why this uh, anterior skull base area has been such a hot area in uh, ear, nose, and throat surgery in the last 10 to 15 years. Well, tell me how you got involved in this. Um, where did you go to medical school? Uh, so I did my medical school and my residency at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And did you decide during that time that you wanted to go into um, ear, nose, and throat? Uh, exactly. So I, I knew I wanted to go into ear, nose, and throat surgery. Um, but when I started residency, I wasn't as familiar with skull-based surgery and sinus surgery and things like that. And I was lucky enough when I was at Chapel Hill to work with um, three, um, you know, really prominent, really talented uh, sinus and skull-based surgeons, Dr. Zanation, Dr. Senior, and Dr. Ebert. And the great thing about those three individuals is they all trained in completely different places. So they're all sinus surgeons, all skull-based surgeons, but they all trained with completely different people. And the great thing about working with them 
is I had three completely different perspectives on sinus surgery and anterior skull base surgery. And I also did my fellowship with those three individuals. And so when I finished my fellowship, I felt really well-trained and really inspired uh, to go out and be able to do anterior skull base surgery myself. And, you know, those three individuals uh, were also the people who got me really interested in sinus surgery and anterior skull base surgery. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where you, you know, hear them talk and see the surgery, operate with them, and you just kind of know, you know, this is what I want to do. This is, you know, this is for me. And so that was really how I got interested in sinus surgery and skull base surgery. Well, interesting. Um, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Mitchell Gore, an assistant professor of otolaryngology and communication sciences at Upstate. So talk to me about why a person might need skull base surgery. What are some of the things, types of patients that you see and, and what you do? So uh, the common indications for endoscopic sinus surgery, endoscopic skull-based surgery, are tumors in the nose. And so those can be benign tumors, um, uh, like inverted papillomas or things like that. Or even uh, really severe sinus disease can sometimes impact the skull base. Uh, malignant tumors, such as uh, you know squamous cell cancers or uh, esthesioneuroblastomas, which is a fairly uncommon tumor that comes from the nerve responsible for the sense of smell. Are the, um, and these are cancers or tumors that grow later in life, so it's more adult patients? or It depends. The, the last two are primarily tumors that affect uh, younger adults, uh, sometimes even older adults as well. Um, and then uh, one of the more common in, uh, indications for skull-based surgery is uh, leakage of brain fluid or cerebrospinal fluid leaks uh, from the uh, base of the skull as well. What causes that? So it's interesting. They can come from different things. They can come from congenital problems. So there are uh, some young patients, some even adults, who for whatever reason develop a dehiscence or a, a weakening in the base of the skull. And so you can actually get a outpouching of the lining of the brain or even sometimes actual brain tissue, and that can leak cerebrospinal fluid. Uh, you can also get it from trauma. We see that commonly when people are in car accidents or uh, altercations. They can uh -huh. get injuries to the base of the skull. And then sometimes it can come from other surgeries. So sometimes if people are having sinus surgery or some sort of other surgery, uh, the base of the brain can inadvertently get injured. Uh, and so that can uh, require repair. Wow, interesting. Um, it sounds like some of the work might overlap with neurosurgery. Exactly. When you talk, it does. Uh, and so uh, at a lot of institutions, the neurosurgeons and the ear, nose, and th throat surgeons will work collaboratively uh, to uh, do this kind of anterior skull base work. And so, for instance, if there is a large tumor that is at the base of the brain, but it partially uh, intrudes into the brain, uh, you'll work together with the neurosurgeons, sometimes completely endoscopically, sometimes part of it will be open, sometimes uh, part of it will be endoscopically, uh, and work with the neurosurgeons to remove the tumor, or if there's a, a CSF leak, you can work with the neurosurgeons to re repair the CSF leak. And the nice thing about that is it combines the expertise the neurosurgeons have with the skull base and the brain sure. with the expertise that your nose and throat surgeons have with the skull base and the sinuses. Uh, to really give the patient the best of both worlds uh, uh, with what they need. 
Are most of these situations, like with tumor removal, is it mostly um, something that's planned or does it come up as an emergency sometimes? Typically with tumor removal, patients will present with some sort of symptoms such as uh, nasal obstruction, sometimes nosebleeds, things like that. Headaches are common. Uh, and uh, when they get their work up, a lot of times either examining the nose with the endoscope uh, or getting imaging, like with a CT scan or an MRI, will reveal a tumor. And so typically those cases, the repair is planned. Occasionally, uh, patients in, uh, you know, like a car wreck or something like that might present with a cerebrospinal fluid leak or something like that. So that might be kind of an emergency. But typically, uh, these cases are planned out very carefully in advance. And the uh, the surgical plan and the imaging is uh, planned out very carefully. When we say tumors in the nose, we're talking about tumors. I mean, patients wouldn't necessarily see this tumor. It's a tumor that's deeper, right? They wouldn't be able to see it or necessarily feel it. Exactly. And so uh, the symptoms of some of these nasal or skull-based tumors can overlap a lot with uh, innocuous other conditions. So some patients with Cerebrospinal fluid drainage might also have symptoms that are commonly seen in, you know, just allergies or things like that. Uh, you know, sometimes nosebleeds or just stuffiness in the nose can be, you know, pretty innocuous symptoms. And so uh, an issue that is sometimes a lot of these tumors are found relatively late because the symptoms can overla overlap a lot with other conditions and patients may not uh, be aware uh, that it's uh, indicative of something more serious. Right. I can see someone going and just dealing with their sinuses all summer thinking it's been a bad year for allergies. Exactly. And ignoring. Okay, so um, once they find their way to an ENT specialist such as you, what do you tell patients about in terms of what they're looking at if they need to undergo a surgery like this? What are some of the risks and uh, how does it go? Is it a one-day surgery? or? Um, well, it depends. In most cases, we will see the patient, um, you know, uh, look in their nose with the endoscope, uh, get some imaging, uh, develop a plan. We'll um, uh, take a biopsy if, if needed uh, and develop a surgical plan. Uh, typically, these types of surgeries are uh, done in one day. Um, often, the patients will have to stay uh, in the hospital at least overnight or possibly several days. Uh, in many cases, the patients may have some packing in the nose, and that's to help with healing and uh, help prevent bleeding. And so uh, typically the packing will stay in a week, sometimes two weeks, to help things heal. Uh, generally, the nice thing about uh, doing uh, these surgeries endoscopically is the recovery is typically very similar to the recovery from you know, typical sinus surgery. And so that's one of the nice things is that uh, patients uh, have a post-operative course that's closer to um, kind of uh, routine sinus surgery. Uh, and uh, that's one of the nice things about the advances with the endoscopes and endoscopic techniques. Uh, are they out of work for a while after? or? Yeah, especially if patients have a cerebrospinal fluid leak, you know, involved in the tumor, or if the surgery is purely to fix a cerebrospinal fluid leak, Generally, we'll have patients take it very easy for uh, four to six weeks to allow the skull base to heal so that they're not straining and increasing the uh, fluid pressure around their brain. Uh, so we will generally have patients take some time off of work and take it easy for several weeks. 
Are there um, risks to the procedure that patients have to weigh and consider beforehand? Sure. So some of the risks of uh, skull-based surgery and sinus surgery are, are similar to other surgeries. You know, the risks of bleeding, the risks mm-hmm. of anesthesia, complications. Uh, some of the risks inherent to skull-based surgery are risks of nerve injury, so muscle weakness or um, uh, facial weakness, facial numbness, things like that. Uh, and the risk of cerebrospinal fluid leak is, is one of the risks. But luckily, uh, there are many techniques for fixing those leaks, and so uh, that's one of the risks that's uh, become uh, lower and lower as the uh, years have progressed. As people do it more and get more expertise exactly. from it. Okay. Um, and then some of the tumors are cancerous. Is mm-hmm. that correct? So uh, are they treated exclusively with surgery, or does a patient face more therapy after the so removal? That's a, that's a good question. So for many of the tumors, uh, after patients have surgery, uh, the goal, of course, being to remove the entire tumor with you know negative margins around the tumor, uh, often we'll also recommend the patient have radiation to the area, and in some cases, uh, possibly also chemotherapy as well. Uh, but uh, many of the tumors do uh, do better uh, with a lower recurrence rate with radiation after surgery. So you have to you collaborate with oncologists in those situations. I exactly, the radiation and okay. medical oncologists. Well, interesting. It's uh, it's nice to know that you're here and offering this service. Yeah. Here at Upstate. Thank you for talking with me. My guest has been Dr. Mitchell Gore from Otolaryngology and Communication Sciences. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poet Norma Wylow is British. She lives on the smallest of the seven main islands of the Canaries, an island called El Hierro. Her poem title sends us into the world of art and then spins us further into a dual reality. Here is Norma Wylow's Van Gogh's Bed. It's the shape that makes it unbelievable. Beyond the first impression, the room with no shadow, bed and chairs fastened in honey colors, depict a smooth grain, invite a pause, or the black line to divide ceiling and wall that pave the paintings in a slant corner, sense of movement the window urges, lilac doors, three points of access, in a friendly but askew room. Once I drew a patient in the ward, captured her with clumsy fingers, yet it bonded us, a mass of wire for hair on the cotton sheets, limb hoisted in a plaster cast, bed in impossible angles with the wheels turned out, caught in motion, made her smile. She returned one day with a photocopy of the snapshot, black ink on glossy white paper, slipped from my hands and bleached like the room.
has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. On next week's HealthLink on Air, hear about the plight of workers in low-wage jobs. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thank you.